Welcome to the Storytellers Lab podcast, where everyday women share personal stories of God's love. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Katie and Lindy. And today we have Susan's story, which we have been waiting for a long time to share. (laughs) That's right. I mean, I don't know if anyone is more excited than me for people to hear (laughs) Susan's story. I actually met Susan when I led the Discover Your Story online Bible study in fall of 2020. Carrie Ray from episode 125 was also um, in that Discover Your Story Bible study. And I'm going to tell you, every time Susan spoke, we all listened in a little bit closer because she is full of so much wisdom. She has been through so many struggles. And I just remember after we finished that Bible study, I remember telling Susan, you have got to share your story. And so she graciously agreed to set aside quite some time with us to tell us her story. And then she also stayed on a little bit longer for a story within the story that is found on Patreon today. So if you aren't a member of Patreon and you want to hear more wisdom from Susan, you want to join today. You can find that in our show notes and it'll take you directly there. And she shares a little bit about her adoption story. And as an adoptive mom, it was so interesting to me. So if that's something you're curious about that you're interested in, she really does open up about their fostering and adoption Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. in the story within the story episode. So here's Susan's story. My name is Susan Simon. And first of all, I want to thank the storytellers team for allowing me to share my story. And I hope that the words that I say will give hope and encouragement and healing, hopefully, to the women who hear my story. I was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1951. I was a premature baby, weighing only three pounds at birth, but I have since made up for that. Um, I was an only child. I had a pretty much idyllic childhood, and I like to tell people that I have spent the last 69 years trying to suppress many of my only child tendencies, but I've tried hard. Anyway, I was my daddy's, the apple of his eye, I was um, a daddy's girl growing up, and I'm very thankful for that because it really made um, it very easy for me to have a wonderful relationship with my heavenly father because my earthly father was such a wonderful man. I went to the Baptist church. I grew up in the Baptist church from the time that I was very young. I made a what I thought was a profession of faith when I was eight years old. I joined the church. But as I look back on that, I realized that most probably it was more of intellectual assent to a bunch of facts that I knew about Jesus. I really didn't know Jesus at all. I knew who he was. I knew he was the son of God. I knew that he had died on the cross for my sins. I knew that he had risen from the dead and that he ever lived to make intercession for me. But It was kind of like knowing that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I had no reason not to believe that. And so that's just what I did. And I kind of feel like I was such a rule follower anyway that I kind of slotted into the idea of, yes, I was supposed to follow Jesus. And so I I remember leaving the church that day and thinking, now I have to do everything right. I can't do anything wrong anymore. And so you can imagine how long that lasted. Not real long. Anyway, so it was not until I was 17 that I attended Young Life, and it was then that someone uh, shared with me an example of a man who pushed a wheelbarrow across a tight boat that was stretched across Niagara Falls, and the people below cheered him on, and he asked if um, they believed that he could do it, and, and they said, yes, we know you can. We've seen you do it. And he said, well, who would like to get in the wheelbarrow and let me push you across? 
And I realized at that time that I, as far as my relationship with God went, I was not all in. I was not in the wheelbarrow. I did not. Um, he had no relevance in my life. And it was then that I prayed and just asked the Lord that if I did not know him, to please come into my life and make me his child. And he did. My life changed dramatically. I used to be very introverted. I know you probably can't believe that. But um, I used to be very introverted and very shy, didn't say a whole lot. And my personality just changed and it bloomed. And most people now would describe me as an extrovert. I'm probably not a true extrovert, but I have definitely changed. My, I grew up in Savannah. We went to Augusta due to a job change for my dad when I was about, I was going into ninth grade, however old you are then. And I finished my last year of junior high school and then my years in high school there. I uh, went to a very small state college. Um, at that time, it was called Augusta College. Now it's, I think, Augusta State University. That's where I met my husband our senior year. Um, we bonded over a failed humanities test. And we were both excellent students. And one day, our humanities teacher gave this pop quiz when we were seniors and we were so far behind. We were both science majors, and he was in biology, I was in chemistry, and we were so far behind that we had no clue what book the questions even matched up with. And so we just both folded our papers. He sat behind me, and when I reached down to get another book to study for the next class, I noticed he had done the same thing that I had. And so when we passed the papers up, well, before that, the teacher said, class, Ms. Anderson and Mr. Simon have already finished. Let's pass our papers up. Well, we had finished all right. We both made zeros. And I just wanted the floor to open up and swallow me. She just never expected that two of her top students had just made zeros on her test. But anyway, we met in 19, um, we married in 1975. Yeah, we dated for two years. Married in 1975, after we had graduated from college in 73, we, Harold entered medical school. I went to work, and he went until his junior year of medical school in 1977, and he then, he finished his junior year, and we, we married in 1975, he, and that, that was when he was finishing his sophomore year, so he was going into his junior year. And then in 1977, we all moved to Birmingham um, because he wanted to do his internship and residency here, and he was accepted. That was his first choice. So we came to Birmingham. I didn't know anything about it except all I knew about was the police dogs and the whole nine yards. I just thought this is going to be an awful place. But we came to Birmingham, and we loved it. Started having our family in 1979. We have five children, David, Cullen, Russell, Jesse, and Philip. Four of those children we raised to adulthood, and Russell was the child that we lost shortly after birth. He was a full-term baby, um, but he was born with a diaphragmatic hernia. We also have two daughter-in-laws. His wife is Brooke, and Philip's wife is Jessica. And we have just, they're lovely young ladies who love my sons and who put up with their crazy mother-in-law. So you can't ask for any more. We also have a young friend, Emily Smith, who lost her parents when she was 25 years old within three months of each other. And she 
kind of needed some support. And so we invited her to be a part of our family. And I, we called her the daughter that I, the daughter I always wanted and the sister that my son has never had. Um, but she is a delight and she's meant an awful lot to our family. We have three dogs and three cats. Um, and that's the Simon household. Um, my husband's name is Harold. I don't think I mentioned that. Anyway, he keeps us all afloat. When we got married, I had some definite plans for my life. I was going to have four girls. We were going to live in an English tutor home. We were going to do hair and ballet. And they were going to be, they were going to love school and just be very into academics. None of those things happened. None of them. We ended up with five boys. We never did hair. I barely did my own. We live in a log cabin. Just And my boys hated school. They hated it. And I, I would often think, Lord, you got this all wrong. I was not supposed to tutor these boys. I was supposed to live in a tutor home. But it was it was crazy. Well, I mean, this family was just wild. Our fifth child, Philip, is an adopted child. And he often said, I have grown up in the most dysfunctional home that there could possibly be. And I said, well, you know, the Lord had a purpose in that because I guarantee you this is where you were supposed to be. At any rate, and, and really, that is a whole nother story for another day. I have read a lot of books in my life, and I love to read. And one of them um, by Vanitha Risner is called The Scars That Shaped Me. And so today I'm going to tell you a little bit about the scars that have shaped my life. The first, which I mentioned, was my son, Russell, who was born in 1982. He was born with a diaphragmatic hernia. At that time, the technology is not was not what it is today. And they, when he was born, you could tell that his left side was very much concave. Um, his left lung was very much underdeveloped. ECMO was not something that was, it, it just didn't exist at that time. And so basically the only thing that they could do was to repair the herniation and to hope that he would be able to have enough time that his left lung would develop more fully. He was, like I said, a full-term baby. He was born in early June, and I was just totally unprepared for that. A couple of weeks before, they had done an ultrasound, but ultrasounds, even in in those days, were not done as much as they are now. Um, And they told me that I had a condition called polyhydramnios, which means that there is an excessive amount of fluid in the amniotic sac. So they told me not to worry, that it could be something, but it might not be. And of course, you can't not worry. I went home with that information. And strangely enough, a couple of days later, this book came in the mail. It was from Chuck Swindoll's ministry. I had not ordered it. It just came. And it was called For Those Who Hurt. And I thought, oh, my, that's not a title that I really want to look at right now. It's a little too close to home, but it had just come. And so I kind of picked it up and looked through it a little bit. Certainly not paying a whole lot of attention to what I was reading. But strangely enough, when my son was born, a poem that was in that book just came to my head that day. And it said, Lord, I'm drowning in a sea of perplexity and waves of confusion crashed over me. Either quiet the waves or lift me above them because it's too late now to learn to swim. And that just summed up the thought that I had. He was born at 
8.30 in the morning, and by 4.30 that afternoon, we got word that he had passed away. I just wasn't expecting that at all. I, you know, I, I was dumbstruck. It was 1982. My husband was a doctor. Why couldn't they do something? I had the very best of medical care. And yet, you know, I, I never even held him. They brought him to my room, and I remember I took my left hand and put it into the isolate where he was, and he grabbed my index finger with his right hand. I never saw him again. I, they asked me if I wanted them to bring him from children's after they had the surgery there. Um, Harold had gone to be with them, and, and I said no, and, and I don't know why. I, I guess I felt like that if I didn't see him, I could avoid some of the hurt. Um, and that was a decision that I have regretted for the rest of my life. And uh, matter of fact, when our second son died of an overdose of heroin and methadone, I remember Harold saying to me, because he died in his home, um, the police and the paramedics were all there. I remember Harold saying, you and our pastor need to go to the house and tell Jesse. Jesse was at home at that time because he had a doctor's appointment and had come from Florida. And I said, no, I made this mistake once and I will not make it again. I will see my son. And going back to, to Russell's death, I, I remember leaving the hospital and I had a piece of paper and that's all I had. And it was just the most devastating thing I had ever faced. And I was just in turmoil. My soul was just, I, I didn't i didn't know what to do. I, I was just completely devastated. And so we went through the funeral and the whole, all of that that's associated with that. And, and I thought, I'm not going to be able to go on. I, I, I can't do this. And yet I had two little children that I had to take care of and they looked exactly like my son that had been born. And every time I looked at them, it was a reminder of what I had lost. And so I knew that somehow I, I was so angry with God I, because I kept struggling over the fact that I knew that he was not the author of evil. And I knew that death and had come into the world because of sin. But this was my baby. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't reconcile any of it. I decided that if this is who God was, I could have nothing to do with him. And yet years before, I, in Bible studies, I had learned a particular verse which said, it was Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. I also had learned 1 Peter 5, 7, which says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And I thought, how can this be? If he cared for me, this would have never happened. I, you know, this just makes this is there's no future in there. There's no hope in this, and yet at the same time, the last thing I wanted to do was to study my Bible. That was the very last thing I wanted to do. And yet I remembered what the when Jesus was giving the hard teachings, and the disciples said, he said to the disciples, "Are you going to leave too? Because so many of the people had left. Are you going to go away?" And Peter said, "Lord, to whom can we go?" You have the words of eternal life. And I knew that, that was the scriptures were the only place I was going to find any answers, and I was determined to find them. And so I started reading in the book of Job, and I went through the book of Job for about 18 months. That sounds like a long time to stay in Job, but trust me, I read it over and over. When I finally got to 
when I finally thought about it and saw what God was doing, you know, he never answered Job's questions either. Um, Job wanted to know why he had lost everything, and and God didn't answer his question. He What he did do for Job was he showed him who was in charge. He showed him that he was sovereign. He asked Job where he'd been when he created the universe and when he set the boundaries for the seas, and Job had no answer. And Job wanted his day in court with God, just as I did. And Job wanted because he was he knew that he had overstepped his bounds. And I did the same because I realized that God was in control. I was not. His ways were higher than my ways and his thoughts and my thoughts. And he saw the whole picture and I didn't. And he promised me that he would use all things and all things means all things for my good and for his glory. And I could either accept that and I could trust that or I just could not be in a relationship with him. And so I chose to submit and to accept what he had shown me. I say, you know, he didn't give me the answer I wanted because he was the answer. He showed me that what I needed was not an answer to my question, but I needed to know him and his character better. The second, I guess you would say, scar that changed my life was the um, sexual molestation of our son, Jesse. And I spoke with Jesse before I shared this because I felt like this is his story, not mine. I also want to be very respectful of the family of the man who did this. And so it happened over a period of time, starting when Jesse was 11 years old. We did not find out about it until he was 18. One morning, I got a call from the wife of this man. They were a fine family. He came from a fine family. He was a trusted friend, um, had gone to the same church that we had for many years. Uh, I got a call from his wife. They had moved at that point in time, and she asked me if she could borrow one of the boys' trucks to go pick up something that she couldn't get in her car. And I said, well, the closest person to you would be Jesse because he was working at that time um, near where they had moved. And I said, you can call him at work, um, and I'm sure he, w- he wouldn't mind. Well, it so happened that when she called him and got there to borrow it, that she could not drive a stick shift. And so she asked Jesse if he would do it for her, and he agreed to do that. So he went and picked up whatever it was, took it to their home. And that afternoon when he came in the door, he said, Mom, after dinner, I have to talk with you and Dad. And if you have young children, you might not have um, experienced that before, but Trust me, when your 18-year-old son comes in and says those words with that kind of tone, my heart went into my stomach and I thought, my life is never going to be the same again. That after dinner that evening, we sat in our living room and he told us what had happened. And as I sat there, I thought, Lord, if this is true, please don't let this man ever deny that he has done this. And please don't let it go to trial. I just did not think I could have abided that. At any rate, um, we asked Jesse what he wanted to do. And he said, "Um, I want to prosecute. I want to be sure that this never happens to another child. And so we told him we would support him in that, but that he needed, first of all, to go and confront this person. And so my husband, Jesse, and our pastor at that time went to confront him, went to his home, asked that he come outside and they spoke with him. 
He did not deny it, so that prayer was answered. However, he did go in and tell his wife an entirely different story. And then weeks went on. We didn't hear anything. I kept thinking, well, you know, surely if if he wants to try to make amends for this or something, he will come to us or he'll have a family member come to us or something. And nothing happened. In the meantime, unbeknown to me, his wife had called one of our neighbors and asked if Harold and Jesse and their pastor had come to speak with her. And she said, no, I I don't know anything about that. And she said, well, they came to speak with my husband. And the reason he gave me just didn't sound very believable. And I thought maybe they had come to you. And she said, no. And she gave her the reason that he had given her. And this neighbor said, you know, I've known Harold and Susan for a long time. And she said, and I know Harold Simon well enough. I don't know what reason the reason was, but I do know him well enough that that is not the reason that they came to your home. At that point, our neighbor knew nothing about what had happened. But about three or four weeks after that, because she had a young son, the same age, about the same age as Jesse, I thought she needs to know. And so I went to her and I told her and she said, Susan, did you mind if I go and tell his wife? And I said, no. I said, because I cannot tell her. I just can't do it. She said that she was going to do that and made a time to do it. In the meantime, I had been praying, you know, Lord, I know you're in this, but I have just, I just need some kind of tangible evidence that you, that you know what's going on, that it's, I've just got to have something. I don't care what it is, but please just do something that I know that only you could do. Um, in this particular situation. Well, um, I have to back up a little bit because after Hale and I had been married 10 years, there was a, um, the church that we attended at that time had a building campaign. And at that, in that particular time, they had asked that each member give sacrificially to that campaign. And at that time, I was a stay-at-home mom and I was not bringing in any income. And so I felt like I needed to give something materially in addition to what Harold was going to give from a financial standpoint. And so the Lord really impressed upon my heart to give the jewelry that Harold had given me for the first 10 years of our marriage. I did that. I I can't say that it was not with some reluctance. I prayed and prayed and just prayed that the Lord would take that away, that thought that I needed to do that. But he did not. I gathered up my children and um, my jewelry and I went to the church and all the way there, I cried and the boys were saying, Mama, you don't have to do this. You don't need to give up your pretty things. Daddy gave you those pretty things. You don't need to do this. And so I thought, well, I do have to obey the Lord. And that's what Daddy would want me to do. And so I gave those things to the to that particular campaign. There was another lady in our church who had also given uh, a She said what she gave, and that was a multi-carat diamond ring. I I don't know how many carats it was, but let me just say it was, in comparison, what I gave looked like the widow's mite. I gave what I had, but it it in no way equaled what she gave to that particular campaign. We were asked to do a video and say why we had done what we did. I never said really what I gave. I just said I gave jewelry. 
and everybody knew what she had given because it was such a phenomenal gift. Years later, a friend of mine came to me and she said, do you know the person that you did that video with got her ring back? And I said, that's the most incredible story I have ever heard. And I said, but even God cares where a multi-carat diamond ring goes. I mean, my word. And so um, she told me this story about how somebody had gone to New York and saw this ring on somebody's hand and and said, where did you get that ring? And this person said, oh, my husband got it at some auction in the Southeast or something like this. And um, and he said, well, I know who that ring belongs to, and I want to buy it back if you will sell it. And so the person sold it. He brought it back and gave it to this lady. And I, you know, I was just incredulous. And I and I said to this person who was telling me this, I said, well, you know, the God would God would do that for her, but he would never do anything like that for me. And so then you say, how in the world does this fit into Jesse's story? Well, I had prayed that the Lord would do something that only he could do. We had not seen, this lady and I had not seen each other for at least 15 years. We had had no contact. Um, and and when all this is going on in my home, and it's just, it, we're in turmoil. Um, my two older sons by this time had gotten very deep into drug addiction. And this was happening with Jesse. And my life was just falling apart. And so um, I get this call from this lady. And she, and at that point, I was doing some catering, um, not a lot, but it was kind of a hobby, if you can call catering a hobby. But anyway, I was doing some catering, and I got a call from this lady. And she said, Susan, I really need for you to come and cater this dinner at my home. I've not heard from her in 15-something years. She could have hired any caterer in the city of Birmingham to have done anything And she's calling me. I thought, this is the craziest thing I have ever heard of. And so I I said, "Uh, I just don't think I can do it. I said, she said, Susan, I have worked for weeks trying to find you. And she said, I didn't know where you went to church. I didn't know where you lived anymore. I didn't even know how many children you had. And she said, I I really need for you to do this. And and I said, my life is falling apart. I don't even know that I can get it together. And she said, please try. Just please try. And I said, okay, very reluctantly. But anyway, the day that I was supposed to do it was the day that this neighbor was going to go and speak with this man's wife. And I was a wreck. I just, I was just a wreck. Anyway, I didn't know whether they were going to land at my house. There was going to be just verbal accusations. I just, I didn't know what was going to happen. At any rate, I got it together. I went to this lady's house. And when I was standing there, she came in the kitchen and she reached up with her left hand and got something out of the cabinet. And I thought, yep, there's the ring. Um, You know, God would do that for her, but he would never do anything like that for me. And so I'm getting stuff together. And she came to me and she said, Susan, I have something for you. Can you step over here into this other room? And I said, sure, thinking, oh, I hope it's my check so I can just finish this and go. And um, I walked into the other room and she handed me this box and she said, does this mean anything to you? And I said, no, it's a jewelry box, but no, it doesn't mean anything to me. And um, she said, why don't you open it? And um, I did. And y'all, those were the pearl, there were the pearls that Harold had given me on my wedding day. And I just, I lost it. And I said, Peggy, 
I said, how long have you, how did you know these were mine? And she said, Susan, I didn't. I did not know they were yours. She said, but I went to the auction. And she said, I saw those pearls and I told my husband those were the most beautiful pearls I had ever seen and that I wanted them. And he bought them for me. And she said, weeks ago, I was praying. And she said, the Lord told me that she said, it's time to give them back. And she said, but Lord, I don't know who they belong to. And he said, yes, you do. You do know they belong to Susan Simon. And she said, I knew then that I had to find you. And I just, I just wept. I just could not believe that the Lord had cared enough about me and about my son to bring something back that I never expected to see again. And of all the pieces, that was the piece that I treasured the most. It was, I just, I just couldn't thank him enough. I wept all the way home. I just could not believe that the Lord had had done that for me. And there have been so many other things in my life that he has done to to show me his love. The third thing that happened was the, um, like I said, the death of our 32-year-old from a heroin methadone overdose. But I was at a very different place when Colin died. I was no longer angry at God. And I was so thankful that it had happened when it if it had to happen, that it happened when it did. Because five years before, we were very much alienated from him. He had stolen from us. He had lied to us. Addiction is a horrible thing. It can tear a family completely apart. Colin had come to us and asked us for forgiveness. And he had sought forgiveness from other people that he had wronged. And we could see that the Lord was changing his life and was He was making progress and taking responsibility in ways that we had not seen him do for many, many years. And we really felt like we were home free. He had managed to wean himself off of methadone. He was no longer using heroin. And yet the day of his death, he called his dad and he said, the withdrawal symptoms are so bad. I just just can't do it anymore. I'm going to have to go back to the clinic. And he did. We also know that he bought heroin that afternoon from his dealer. And he told his dealer that he was afraid to take it because he had not taken it in so long. Um, and that was also confirmed by the coroner. Uh, the coroner told us that had he been using on a regular basis, the amount that was in his system would not have killed him. And yet it did. It was a devastating time for our whole family. But we know that he is with the Lord. He, he was a Christian. And yet he had his own struggles. And I think about all these things and how the Lord, what the Lord has taught me through all this. And most of all, he has taught me that he is sovereign over all things. Um, There is nothing that touches my life that he does not allow uh, to touch my life. And therefore, I don't fear the future because I know that he is in control. I talk about the scars that have shaped me. You know, scars, they don't hurt anymore because they remind you of a wound that has been healed but they can sometimes be tender and so I I do have tender places on certain anniversaries of my children my birthdays and the day that they died those are tender spots in my life and it's just those are hard days for me God is not concerned so much about my happiness as he is about my holiness and I have found that there can be joy even in great sorrow. And I honestly don't think that had I not 
experience the sorrow that I have in my life, I don't know that I could really and truly experience the joy that I have experienced. Joy, I look at joy as something that only Jesus can do. One of the neat things, I'm in a grief group of mothers who have lost children from overdoses. And one Mother's Day, uh, the administrators of that group decided to pair mothers up that were interested in being paired up with another mother who uh, had also lost their child due to an overdose. And the lady that I was paired up with, and this is this is something only God can do. Um, when I shared with her about Russell and his birth um, and death from a diaphragmatic hernia, she was a survivor of a diaphragmatic hernia. Only God could have put me with that particular person. And it, it was just it, it was just so neat. He gave me an obstetrician when Russell was born who had lost his two sons in very much the same way that we lost Russell. He gave me a friend who the year before Russell was born had lost one of her twins six days before his first birthday to spinal meningitis. And she was just a rock for me. Um, during that time. There were just I could just go on and on about how he has touched my life with with good things and, and, and things that only he could have done. I have this crazy pair of, of black pants that um, my son David gave me that have these huge bright circles on them. And we have an airstrip behind our home. I can't wear them anywhere else except in my home and on the airstrip. And hopefully the person who flies the plane is not there when I have them on. But anyway, one day I was out with those pants on and this butterfly, this monarch butterfly lit on my pants. It was the coolest thing. Um, Something that brings me joy, something only God can do. I have learned that God is not safe. He will put us in situations that stretch our faith and that cause us to grow. He is not fair. If he were fair, we would all be on our way to hell. Um, And most of all, you know, his son was the perfect, the perfect God man. It certainly wasn't fair that the greatest evil in all of history, um, his crucifixion, where the just died for the unjust, that was not there, but it produced the most wonderful blessing because we have a way to to be brought back to God because we're sinful people. And had it not been for Christ's death, we would have never had a way back to, to God himself because he cannot look upon sin. And that is my story. And I just hope that it brings hope and healing and um, encouragement to anyone who is listening. At the end of the story, Susan says, God is not safe and he is not fair. And I think if we've ever heard a story that that makes you want to bang your fist on the floor and say it's not fair, it's this story. Because Susan says, how much can one person take? And yet she is, it's so profound that she says, God is not fair. If he was fair, we would all be in hell. And that really stopped me in my tracks Mm -hmm. when she said that, you know, our family has struggled through some medical things with my daughter. We all have we all have our things that we go through. And then you hear a story like this, mm-hmm. and it takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. When she referenced Job 
And, you know, Job never understood why God tested him and why God took so many things away. But she said what she did learn from that was that he is sovereign over all things Mm -hmm. and all things mean all things. Mm -hmm. We want easy things. We want pretty things. We we want, Mm -hmm. you know, his abundance. But all things are all things. And I was on the Bible study that Mm -hmm. Katie referenced, uh, Discover Your Story in the Fall. And and literally people did pay attention to Susan. She was so intentional Mm -hmm. and so wise and just such a kind spirit. Oh my gosh, Linda, you're absolutely right. Uh, she just honestly, I kind of looked at her as a mom for mm-hmm. the whole group because she would just tie so much uh, biblical scripture and wisdom in every conversation that we had. You know, one of the things that stuck out to me was when she tied it in at the end and said, you know, scars don't hurt. They're a visible sign of healing, but they are tender. And, you know, God allows us to go through things that shape us into the image of his son and they can remain tender for us. I just, Susan, I appreciate you. I love you. I thank you so much for for sharing with us. And you know, it was funny after we finished hearing her story, like I said, at the beginning, we kind of kept talking to her and we kept recording. And so we turned that into a story within the story. And one of the things that was great was Susan said in there, I have happy stories too. <laughs> and and I'm like, I'm yeah, so glad. yes. And so she kind of t- shares those happy stories, shares so much more wisdom as if you thought that there was any more to share. So if you want to join Patreon today, it would be a great day to join. You can go to patreon.com forward slash STL community. And for five or $10 a month, you you will get the stories within the stories. There's discovery guides on there, which are just one sheet Bible studies related to our storytellers. We have um, bonus stories on there. So you get so much content and you support our ministry. It costs money to run podcasts and this helps us to stay on the air. So we just thank you guys so much who have joined and we look forward to more patrons uh, to join us as well. We hope y'all have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.